Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Crosswires. It's James here, and this week we are going to be focusing on the environment, or rather, the impact our technology and our own use of technology—not just technology itself, but our own habits has on the environment. I have a wonderful guest this week. Chris Adams, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And this is, I have to give another shout out to James Smith. So we got Dr. Catherine Flake for our blockchain discussion. And James wonderfully pointed us uh, to each other and uh, made that connection. So thank you again, James, genuinely. But Chris, before we get into the show, and get into what is, I am sure, going to be an amazing discussion. We, I've got, we've got a Google Doc sort of beside us, which has evolved over the last hour. Even as we just jumped on to start, you know, a show prep, there's so much great stuff going in there. But Chris, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and you know why why you're speaking on the environment? I guess. Okay, uh, so my name is Chris Adams. I am the executive director of the Green Web Foundation. It's a uh, Dutch foundation that for the last, say, 15 years or so has been tracking the transition of the Internet away from fossil fuels towards a more advanced and humane form of power. We now work towards an entirely fossil free Internet by 2030, and we largely work to accelerate that transition using open data, open source and open culture. Uh, one of the things that's probably most you could try immediately uh, if you've come across or if you've heard of us before would be our API and our green web check service. So you can check any website um, in the world and uh, we will tell you if we can find any information about whether it's running on green energy or not. And uh, we do this because there are more websites in the world than there are data centers. So if you know, uh, if you know which data centers to actually speak to, we could basically, we, basically allow data centers to register with us and uh, share the information they do have about how they've sourced their power so that when you ch when people check a website run on, on those data centers, you'll get a smiley face showing a green website. And if we can't find any information, we'll show a gray sad face saying that, no, nope, we cannot find any information for this. We are running on the default, which is uh, like, well, most of energy largely comes from fossil fuels right now. So this is what we do. We also do a couple of other things, but... Um, I suspect you might have some questions there, James. So I can go there, then we can talk about some of the other things we do. Absolutely. So, I mean, the first question is, I, you know, I'll be completely transparent, we host with DigitalOcean. How are they doing? Yes. DigitalOcean are interesting because they themselves are, they, they have uh, a number of dedicated employees internally who kind of, in many ways, push for this kind of stuff. And DigitalOcean actually do use some providers who we have evidence of them running on renewable energy. Well, we, uh, but, uh, so we have stuff like this and we even actually, our platform that we use to track, track this stuff, um, it's on GitHub. We have an open issue with DigitalOcean asking them to do a DigitalOcean cleanup and actually share information with us so that we can actually mark the green regions, the regions where there is evidence of them accounting for the fossil emissions from their, from, from the use of data centers. So we can get smiley faces for all the people who do have that. So DigitalOcean, because they're using Equinix in a number of places and because Equinix do actually have a pretty good record in this compared to other, other providers, they are middling at the moment, but they could definitely be moving a lot faster. And if there were users who cared about this, I'm sure they would move even faster. Well, I mean, I can say straight away, you know, I will absolutely 
be talking to them when you know because we we aren't in a contract with them but absolutely something i you know we want as much as possible the stuff that crosswires is using to be on the green web uh, we'd love to have everything that we use now i know that's not going to be possible we use a lot of different services i would be very curious to see how squadcast fares uh, I can go and yell at Zach if it if it's not doing too well. I forgot. I know they host a lot of stuff with Google. They host a few other bits and pieces as well. Now, interestingly, and, and Marie, one of the reasons I asked this is, we did an episode recently with a team at Backblaze, and I don't know if you've heard about their, their new Nautilus. It's not it's Nautilus is the company providing it, but their mm-hmm. one of their new data centers, which is entirely river water cooled. This is pretty cool, uh, literally. Um, just before we go any further on the previous one, I've just shared in the show notes the issue specifically. So if there are any people who want to actually contribute to the actual platform we have and the data that we do have so that you're using DigitalOcean and you can actually get marks as green, that's we can add that in the show notes. So awesome. let's go. Uh, so that's what I just wanted to kind of uh, tidy that one up. So you mentioned about Nautilus, the data center from like run of the river stuff. Yeah. This is a, a, if I understand it, I think you, this is actually how I got into this, this cast actually. And let's, uh, I'll briefly teach, speak about uh, James Smith's, the card, the shadow he casts about us being on this podcast in a bit, but let's go to uh, that part there. You said that the water is, uh, the data center is, is called by the water running through the river. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So it's in California and f- there's a whole paper on uh, that Backblazer put out explaining the partnership. And so the, I think the idea is that it draws the cold river water in mm-hmm. and then it loops that through the cooling system. Mm-hmm. And I, I will be honest, I am not a data center expert by mm-hmm. any definition. The closest I've come is punching a, uh, a Cisco switch at one point because it wasn't working properly. Um, but then it, that water is then put back out, once it's done its job, put back out into the river. And from what I understand, they've done it in a way that it's not going to impact uh, the aquatic ah, life in the yes. area. They've they've done the studies to make sure that it's not, it, you know, I think it's only maybe a couple of degrees warmer. It's not a huge jump. And, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I um, I, I need to be kind of clear that I'm not a data centre expert either. The, uh, but there is a lot of talk about free cooling as mechanisms for being able to like use water like this. And as long as it's not actually having an impact or like, like you said, like affecting the outside environment, this is actually a good thing. And in many cases, uh, this is, uh, in many ways better than other forms of, uh, cooling people might use like evaporative cooling where it just goes into the sky. For example, you'll see, uh, some, uh, some places where, you have like a water table, an aquifer that people draw water from. And you can have cases where data centers use as much as the rest of the entire community uh, wow. for this. And uh, exactly. And um, that's like one source of power, uh, that one source of water usage. But it's also worth bearing in mind that when you're generating energy, uh, most of the time, if you're not using something like kind of renewable or geothermal sources, then you're basically doing something to like you're taking heat you're making heat somehow either nuclear or setting fire to things that turns water into steam which is then uh, used to turn a turbine and you need to figure out what to do with that waste heat in that water one of the bit one of the one of the significant uses of water is actually and this is by far the largest usage of fresh water both in america and probably the uk still is actually uh, power generation thermal power generation is one of the biggest if not the biggest source of water usage and it's really important to 
have this in mind when we talk about uh, water usage related to data centers, because a lot of the time, the data center part, you can solve with clever usages like the uh, Backblaze example. But for the other part, which is in many cases much, much larger, if you want to get rid of that but your water usage, you're going to probably need to get away from thermal generation where you heat up water to turn a turbine, basically. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We, I mean, the minute you that, that little explanation of power, my mind mind went straight to the Chernobyl miniseries and the experiment <laughs> they were trying to run there. You know, I mean, all I'm going to say is you didn't see graphite on the roof. There is no graphite. <laughs> But you know, it was it, it's an interesting one, and you know, living so I uh, it's fully public where I live. I live in the south coast of England. I live in Bournemouth, so we do get a lot, quite a reasonable amount of sun, and a lot of the properties here are south facing. So I'm seeing more and more solar panels now. Solar has because it's correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Because solar is not a guaranteed form of power. It's wonderful, but mm-hmm. obviously, it's a varying amount of power generation it may would it be considered stable enough for data center use i mean i guess if you run it through run it through your typical huge ups systems that those data centers have can solar play a part here as well absolutely in fact uh solar power because it has roughly 10 times cheaper than it was 10 years ago and it's getting cheaper more or less around 20 percent year on year going forward it's likely to become more and more uh, popular. So you are going to see this. And as long as you have a way to store that power, it's, it's viable to run uh, data centers with this as part of it. Now, unless you're somewhere where solar power, where, where it's only ever sunny, then uh, you obviously are going to have an issue when the sun goes down. And uh, that's when you'd often resort to other forms of energy generation or some way of actually making sure that you can use power. So a common thing, for example, if you're not connected to the grid, is actually having things like um, storage itself, like either form of batteries or other forms of storage, possibly like a backup fuel cell or something like that. So eBay, for example, they have fuel cells in some of their data centers as an alternative to using the grid. And what we've seen over the last, say, uh, two years in particular, is that as the cost of energy from the grid has just skyrocketed because of the cost of fossil gas, you've seen a real drive for people to find other forms of on-site generation as a way to reduce the cost that they do actually have. Uh, so yes, you can have solar as a key part and solar is only going to become a greater and greater part of our energy mix according all, according to all of the analysis simply because it's getting cheaper faster than any other power source that we are really deploying right now or have access to at present. So very exciting. So do go and check your favorite websites. You know, maybe if you're hosting a site for your business, go and check it and see if it does meet that green web check. And then, you know, maybe consider, let's just be really honest, maybe consider moving to a hosting provider that it will give you that yellow, that smiley face, because that's helping you be more of a positive impact on the environment. And look, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? Companies want to be, you know, want to get all that certification. Well, having a control, I think it's something you talk about later in in our show notes is the importance of not just your own production, but the supply chain behind it all. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can touch on this. This is actually maybe a nice, elegant segue to uh, one of the thing, one other thing we do, which is running a fellowship. So last year, because when people first come to, when lots of techies and people who are tech adjacent start thinking about the link between technology and the environment, they often are extremely overwhelmed. And uh, what we did, we did, um, we actually applied for some funding with the Internet Society Foundation, and uh, they funded us uh, to basically run a series of fellowships where we would basically uh, pay for someone's time, pay for five fellows to basically share their learning in the open about how they figured out how to incorporate ideas like climate justice into their work. So for example, uh, one of the projects was a kind of cool interactive map from uh, from one woman, uh, Melissa, I'm going to mispronounce her name. This is so embarrassing. Chung, I think, H-S-I-U-N-G. She was doing a sustainability course, a master's in sustainability at Columbia University. But uh, on alongside this, she was exploring, basically reading about the, the entire lit- set of literature about climate justice and about where some of these kind of, what some of these conversations are about and how in many ways climate change is very much a story about some of the things we see back in kind of colonialism kind of uh, moved all the way forward and projected into the future basically so she was uh, she ended up doing a bunch of research around that and one thing she did was she built this cool map basically showing all the showing basically using google google earth to show where all the various parts of very of hardware would like would actually come from so you could use like a really slick activity like that but the map would take you to say parts of africa in uh, and and they would take you to parts of say the congo or parts of say peru where, so, where certain minerals came from so you could actually kind of vi- vis- visually see all these different mines and places like that but we had other people doing other other research like this and one thing that came out of that is a well a second year we just we're now doing some work with the ford foundation for a second and third year of this f- fellowship program but we also created a library on using an open source tool called zotero where we've been collecting all of these reports and papers and websites and things so that if someone doesn't want to come to this field and basically start making sense of it we've kind of dropped some breadcrumbs for other people who might have may be interested and later on in february we'll be announcing the next set of fellows who will be sharing their learning as they come along brilliant that's fantastic so the next thing we talk about as obviously we talk about data centers we talk about infrastructure what about the software that runs a lot of the tools that we use now this is this is a big one like again how that's all run and how how we can have a how that can be more green rather than just a you know a color code in a CSS. No, bad joke. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So there's um there's a few things that you might want to uh, look at, or if you are interested in this field specifically, like it's I think it's relatively I think most engineers would if they're uh, given all things being equal, they would prefer to have. Uh, be responsible for an application which is not causing avoidable harm if they can help it. And because pretty much electricity or any of the usage is coming from places where fossil fuels are being burned, there is avoidable harm while while we have that. So there is like a kind of reflex that you do want to kind of kind of make the make the tools you do have tread lightly on the world or at least avoid that net, uh, that uh, avoidable harm, right? And uh, 
there are, if you're looking at software, there's a few organizations that we do some work with uh, and some, some libraries, some software libraries that we've created to make it easier for this. So most recently, uh, and um, I'm going to share something now because by the time this goes live, I think there should, it, might, it should be visible for people. Uh, we worked on a library called CO2JS, which, as you'd imagine, is a JavaScript library which uh, embeds a number of various models so that you can say, well, I'm doing this much, uh, this kind of activity is using this much power. This is what the environmental impact of that is likely to be. We uh, we basically got that merged into the Firefox browser itself. So wow. when you're using uh, the browser itself, you can basically visit a web page. You can use all of Firefox's profiling tools and you can get a rough idea of what the likely environmental impact of that website and it's that particular session is likely to be. And this is shared, we did this to create some tooling so that people who build the web are able to set more kind of humane and considerate defaults, which don't unnecessarily burn through people's batteries, but also don't have a kind of wider impact as well. So that's like one thing we did. And yeah, we're pretty proud of that because uh, that literally came out of uh, a discussion in the second half of 2022. And uh, we've ended up using CO2JS in a number of different places now. And it's an open source project, open to pull requests as with other ones. That's fantastic. And look, I'm a big fan, a big Firefox fan. I, you know, I did a video uh, on our YouTube channel a while ago about their multi-account containers. They may not have the biggest browser share anymore, but there's so much of that legacy of Mozilla and Netscape there and some really clever innovation. I would say, you know, I have all three browsers. I mean, so, sorry, um, I, I run Chrome for Squadcast just because WebRTC, mm-hmm. that's where the best support is. But Firefox, I, I use so much. And that is, that's incredible. And, of course, that'll mean is you're building your website. So, say, for example, when me and Jay were building the Crosswise WordPress site, we could have used those profiling tools to say, okay, how much impact does our new site have? And what can we, you know, where can we be looking at things? Yeah, that was the idea. We wanted to create something like that because there's a lot of public discourse in our kind of little digital sustainability circles about, okay, what makes an environmentally friendly website? How do you measure this kind of stuff? And there are some models which we include in the library. The one is called the sustainable web design model, which largely goes on the amount of transfer that's sent over the wire, because that's uh, one thing that you, which is easy to measure. And in many ways, a lot of the academic literature basically says, if you're going to look at the environmental footprint of things then working out a co2 per gigabyte trans a figure is one way to do it now there's good things about that it's easy to do there but there's also bad things about it because in many ways as we learn more about this about like this field uh the actual relationship uh, it's not necessarily kind of proportional so a lot of us think and this is what we spoke about before james the idea that if you have a kind of car model where, well, let's say that you you drive twice as far in a car, it's going to have twice as many emissions. It's not necessarily the same when you have websites and things. And in fact, the mental model that's more useful to kind of have at hand is maybe rather than cars, think of maybe like putting cycle lanes down and then having people cycle along those. So there's obviously an environmental impact to building cycle lanes, right? But once you've got that set up, the kind of marginal you uh, the, the the marginal emissions from every single person cycling on there yeah it's not zero because people 
breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2, but it's not the same in, as you would have with cars, for example. And I think it's a lot of the time we don't really have the mental models yet to do this. And this is partly what we did some work with on CO2JS to do, to A, provide a kind of vessel for different models, but also to provide easy access to some of the kind of conversion factors. So that if you've got direct information from, say, a browser, you can use that. But if you only have the information uh, that you might measure indirectly, like, say, transfer, you've got an option there. We try to basically serialize some of these ideas in code so it's possible to use different models to see what's the most effective and relevant for your particular use case yeah and it's great to get those models established so people can think about this and that leads me nicely to to at least at this point of the show the big question that i want to ask and put to you and and put into the minds of our audience for our listeners um before we go any further i do want to say this is absolutely an episode where we want to invite discussion so there are the comments on the episode itself of course you can tweet or uh toot whatever have we called it post now i'm hoping we've changed it away from toot i'm using um, post instead of toot because i feel a bit silly saying toot yes it doesn't sound quite right does it so you can either toot or why not come over to our discord crosswise.net forward slash discord we will have a forum post for this episode come and discuss with us um just follow our community rules and you will be everyone will be welcome that's our rule so on the back of that the question i think i posed or the question i did pose in our document is why should we as the people as me and you right now sat here recording this with lights on with computers on or you know when we go elsewhere and maybe you know charge our phones or watch netflix watch youtube or watch peertube you know whatever we want to uh watch why should we care why should we care about what the environmental impact of sending my email is or playing the latest game i think there's two reasons so first of all if you're in a position where you can play the latest game or watch netflix or something like that you're already in a pretty exclusive club of people who have like enjoy really, really good access to things that we that lots of other people don't have, like shelter, energy access, uh, cool gadgets, all stuff like that. And in many cases, we uh, if you're in that kind of group of people, you're probably proportionally uh, like to have a greater environmental impact than maybe the other, say, 80 percent plus of the planet right? So there's a degree of responsibility that you might actually have just because you're in a position of power compared to other people. This is not to say that there are people who are more powerful for you that, that should not be, do, that, that also need to be doing things. Because when you look at the environmental impact, when you look at, say, the the, the one, the if you look at like the the, the higher you go up the kind of food chain, mm. the greater the environmental impact tends to be from various people. So you and me, we might have a carbon footprint of between five and 15 tons per person when you go up to the kind of millionaire or billionaire status you're you're looking at thousands of tons for people which is there's a kind of unfairness aspect that you might want to have so there's basically a kind of from in my view a kind of there, there is a kind of somewhat moral related aspect of that like if i'm able to make changes to avoid uh, harm that uh, that that then I probably should do some some of that stuff, especially if it's not going to be creating significant amounts of like sacrifice at, at my end, for example. And a lot of the time, I think the things that you might want to do are actually, or the things you people might be advocating, 
do actually represent a win on an environmental scale, but they also in, represent a win in terms of quality of life scale yourself, for example. So I think going back to your original uh, reason why you should care, I think that's what there, there is a kind of justice and moral argument, but there's also a kind of, isn't it cool argument, right? There's a whole thing about if you want to build something, you want to you do it in a really efficient fashion because a lot of us, you know, we're nerds. We're quite, we kind of have this kind of aversion to waste if possible, right? It seems like we, you know, we're taught to avoid some of that stuff. So I think there's different reasons that you might actually have. I think that it's useful to bear in mind that when you do have this, it's worth realizing that there are some things you can do that might feel good. And there are some things which are systemically effective. They're not necessarily the same thing. So uh, a lot of the time you'll see people basically say, well, if you're going to, if, if you feel bad about uh, the environmental impact of technology, then you should turn off the video on your Zoom or on a Zoom call, for example, or something like that. You can do something like that, or, or you might feel terrible about watching Netflix, for example, or having a Zoom call with someone. When you're in the middle of a pandemic, I don't think that's, you're not going to have that much of an impact there. I feel that it might make you help, help you feel like you're more in control of and feel like you're able to do something. But systemically, I don't think it's anywhere near as effective as being able to engage at a political level or speak to, like, say, local government, for example. So I think there is an argument which is basically just it's probably aligning with how you feel. And in many cases, it can help you feel a little bit better about some of the kind of general ennui and dread people tend to have around climate basically because some kind of action does often help you move to like uh, a a more a, a larger or more impactful thing elsewhere i i can completely echo that sort of the food chain um because and it's something that's just come back to you. so on if i'm going out for a walk in the evening there's a certain route i take and it goes past quite a shall we say well-off street i won't name it but there's a new build there and every time I walk past it, every single light is on in that build. There's no one in there, but all the lights are on everything. I'm thinking, hang on, okay, there might be LEDs, but that's still, what, why do they need to be on? Okay, I, there's a, for me, there's a difference, uh, we're talking external lights, there's a difference between safety, so security lighting, and then why does your house need to be lit up like Blackpool Tower and Blackpool Illuminations? Mm. If there's, A, there's no one there... And B, why? If you, okay, sure, security spotlights that are motion based or whatever, that makes perfect sense. But I don't really want to, I don't need to see the outside of your house. I don't need to see how wealthy you are. And I think the, the problem for me is that class of person that can afford to pay the energy bill on that. But what they're not considering is their contribution to the environmental impact. You know, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of discussion around, you know, football stadiums. Uh, leaving their spotlights on for longer after there was a, a big argument about um, Bournemouth recently where they'd left their spotlights on and it was causing like this huge orange glow in the sky I'm like hmm <laughs> it's a very interesting again and businesses who so oh I'm, I'm gonna so there's a, 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 a real estate uh, estate agent office who they've closed that office down but they've left all the lights inside on and all the like display panels all the you know signage permanently on why why i think a lot of the time okay this stuff like this can happen because there is either no one responsible for it or it's not it's not costing enough for people to actually feel the kind of 
negative impacts of that a lot of the time. And in many cases, for example, your example of light pollution into the sky, right? I don't, it's probably not the people who own the uh, own the stadium who are harmed by that kind of light pollution. So the harms could be very, very diffuse, but the upsides are much, much more concentrated. And this is the thing that you this is a this is more of a kind of wider governance problem but it might be worth referring to like this you 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 spoke about one or two things about the idea of saying well uh there's a degree of comfort i might might want to have and then there's maybe a cost to providing uh you know a slightly more comfort for this and like this might be a, a nice segue to some of the different some of the one of the stories you hear about like the xbox story about like you know the shutdown thing because this is one, one thing we looked at before and like uh, i'll let you introduce this stuff here because there are a few i can give you some other examples for this actually no this is this is perfect so microsoft now most modern consoles will have a couple of different modes they'll have um energy what they call energy saving standby so the console will go to sleep and I mean, this is true across across a lot of devices. You know, the concept of sleep versus suspend versus shutdown. And, you know, on my Mac in particular, I remember, you know, being a big fan of hibernation because hibernation would effectively write the contents of your RAM to disk and then it would completely power off a machine apart from... Well, no, I think it would completely power off a machine and the idea would be that yet when you turn your machine back on, there's a little bit longer to, time to come back up, but you don't have that same environmental impact because mm. and but microsoft are now it looks like correct me if i'm wrong but they're basically doing something to effectively nudge people towards more of a shutdown mode a power saving shutdown rather than just having a system on standby what are they actually doing and, and yeah. is this something that's common across the games because i've got two systems in front of me games wise i've got nintendo switch and a steam deck both of which are probably in standby so Let's talk a little bit about, about that as well. But yeah, what are Microsoft specifically doing? So the the story that I think we're referring to is in Ars Technica about Microsoft switching a default to kind of default to, I think it's called shutdown rather than sleep mode, right? Uh, the impact of this is that when you're not using uh, uh, an Xbox, you're being in the kind of shutdown mode versus the sleep mode means that it uses 20 times less power or more around about that. So it's like, Rather, you're using like 0.5 watts compared to like 10 to 15 watts. Now, that doesn't sound very much when we talk about it right now. But if something is like sleeping all all day long, right, that over a year, that works out. I mean, 15 watts over, I think, uh, the all the hours in a year, it's comparable to a very efficient fridge in the UK, right? And uh, a lot of the time, we don't have a kind of reference point for this, right? Uh, so it's maybe like £15 or so or, or some figure like that in terms of costs for this. But it's just avoidable for this. Because, for example, the, 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 difference, the, exper- the, the, the difference in experience you might have is that it takes 15 seconds to come on rather than two seconds to come on, for example. And a lot of the time, I'm not sure that I... It's, I'm not sure waiting 15 seconds is worth that 20-fold increase in energy usage or resource impact. And like you see this in lots and lots of other places. So one example, there's an organization called the Greening of Streaming Group, uh, and they're trying to do something like this for streaming. Because a lot of the time, we've gone from maybe 70p, 1080p, uh, uh, up to like 4K, and now there's discussion about having like 8K displays and stuff like that. And you have a default to like sending sending as much data as you can down the pipe to people all the time. And A, there's a question about how much quality can we perceive? 
But also there's a quality, there's a question about, okay, are we even paying attention to this kind of stuff in the first place? And uh, stuff like this means there's actually a lot in, in lots and lots of places. There are ways where if you can't, if you're not, if you can't perceive the, the actual usage or you can't actually, if, if you're not going to benefit from it, then it's not really worth the extra resource usage. I mean, the, the, the example that I guess we, we, we all experience every day is browser tabs, right? Once you tab out a browser, your browser will usually try to throttle it back a bit, right? And most of the time, this is a good thing. It means you have to have a longer life life on your battery, for example. But it's the same. It's the same concept, and it's a, it's about where you actually choose to use it. So there's a whole thing around efficiency and where you choose to use this kind of stuff, and where the marginal increase is worthwhile. And uh, the Xbox One is a really nice example. The greening of streaming stuff is also, in my view, quite an interesting one. And the thing that comes into here is it starts asking questions about okay, how much power do you actually need? In in your in your typical gaming rig, when you compare uh, when you compare different things, like uh, it's I'm not sure if I want to go into the field of saying is I don't know uh, the Last of Us on PS4 really twenty the twenty or thirty times better than the energy usage the, the, than the than the value I get from playing I don't know uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on a Switch right. There's going to be a difference in power usage there. Yeah, of course. And I don't yeah. think that's the thing. You should probably go to that level. But for cases where there is no loss, it feels like it's, this is a really low-hanging fruit. And there's loads of avoidable, basically, waste that we could probably do without uh, in, 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 in the short term, at the very least. And it's, that's a really good point. So, yeah, I mean, I personally, you know, I don't mind have if i finish my gaming session for the evening i don't mind actually shutting down my system because i'm not going to come in back to that evening and look i can go and do if it takes an extra 10 15 seconds we're talking consoles that use solid state storage we're not talking 90s gaming mm. pcs with with drives that will take 20 minutes to boot we're talking incredibly fast ssds and i think it's it's worth considering that and something that of course, I realise is, well, what devices need to be permanently on? So, I mean, we've talked about Wi-Fi routers. I guess, you know, you could potentially shut down your Wi-Fi overnight. Now, there is a potential problem there in that that means your phone then goes on to cellular data. Does that then use more power? There's a balancing act. What well, One thing that I, I did want to touch on a little bit, you talked about quality and gaming rig. It's something you, you kind of, you've put a, a, the power of these GPUs and the CPUs. Now, I'm a huge fan of what Apple are doing with their Apple Silicon. Such a low-powered system that can perform. Just mind-blowing performance. But then you look at NVIDIA's 1440 series cards, which, what are they, like 350 watts, 400 watts per card, if not more? <laughs> You can end up with figures like this, yeah, they're power, like mind-blowing power draws considering, yeah. When we look at, you know, our gaming rigs and our streaming rigs, do we want to be conscious of making sure we've got the performance we need for things to be comfortably playable? Is there an excess, do you think, in those, those really silly GPUs and, and CPUs? Here's the thing, like, um, I don't really play uh the games that need such high resolutions at like 120 fps and as far as i could like if you if you're choosing to do something like that in my book i feel like that's probably better than taking a flight every weekend for example or something like that and i feel that if you if you were doing that and you really enjoy that 
I don't think it's really my place to tell you that not to do that, but my, it might be my place to say, well, if you're going to do that and you know there's an environmental impact from the power you're using, that probably put, put placed, that heightens the importance of you probably doing something to decarbonize the electricity you're actually using. Like, because in many ways, like the story of progress is us having better access, greater access to energy, which allows us to do more things or benefit from all kinds of services. And I feel that, yeah, if you're going to have, if you're going to spend, because uh, these are not cheap cards, right? To do that, but not then spend a little bit extra, uh, spend uh, to actually have like, say, a green, a green energy plan, for example, that seems like a, misplacement of priorities in my book here i suspect there's i think that's what you, you could actually do i mean you can also make the argument that if you're going to go down this route you could do something really really wacky like say well i'm only going to run this gpu on a on the power that i can store from the solar on my roof so i've got a certain amount of time to play right <laughs> but like, there's there's things you could actually have there to have like my entirely guilt-free gaming session but i i'm not sure that and to be honest, the people who buy gaming rigs and stuff like that, I'm not sure that telling people you shouldn't be using this is going to make that much of a difference to their behavior. But being able to be a bit mindful about where the power comes from and how you, and step, trying to take steps there, I think are useful. And this actually speaks to a model that we use internally where we work. We talk about the CID model. So consumption, intensity and direction. You could, we largely talk about it in terms of consumption is like, can I reduce the amount of resources I need to do something? And now intensity is about, can I reduce the harm done when I use those resources? Because in some cases, you will have to use resources, but you want to reduce the harm there. And then direction is basically, okay, what kind of world am I heading towards to build, for example? We use this as a model for helping uh, organizations figure out what kind of intervention they might actually want to make to do something about the climate crisis. And the reason we have these three is that you might talk about, say, consumption and intensity, for example, but there's a whole piece about what world you choose to create, right? Now, let's talk about, say, something like AI, for example, using machine learning to do something. You can have super efficient machine learning, like the most effective model rather than a wasteful one, and you can use it running on really gr on green energy. But if you're using that, uh, that, that, that machine learning or AI to do something like help people extract oil for example or you help it or you're helping use it to radicalize people on social media i feel that's like that's probably not you know that's just as important as how green the energy is that you might be using for any of these tools so i think there's very much a kind of direction aspect for this kind of stuff too absolutely and look you know i mean one of my biggest reasons for you know we we talked with uh Catherine flick a couple of weeks ago about the environmental impact. I, I, I don't want to spend too much on it because we've already talked about it, but, um, you know, the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency, insane GPU farming, you know, with massive power draw, I just don't, I just don't see a benefit in that at all. Yeah, I, to be honest, I think I sympathize with that. I really, really struggle with finding, uh, like whenever I speak to people whose opinions I respect when they're trying to solve a technical problem, I can't think of many scenarios where a blockchain improves things uh, or performs better than existing non-blockchain related environments. There may be some cases which are really, really, really niche and specific. I don't know about them and I've never come across anything like that in my 25 years of working as a as, as a professional in this field. So I suspect Maybe they do exist. 
in the same way that maybe unicorns do exist or stuff like that. But for the most of the time, I'm not going to base my career around this case. And I feel like, yeah, the that's from a technical point of view, that's kind of problematic. But also just from a idea of who is benefiting for the amount of usage is that there's another problem there. Like if you look at the the numbers from the International Energy Agency, uh, I find this stuff really fascinating because they've released, released some reports recently basically showing that data centers might be using, I think when they looked at all the figures, there was something in the region of 200-ish terawatt hours is the figure cited by the IEA, right? That's quite large, right? And uh, when they looked at blockchain by comparison or like kind of uh, cryptocurrency mining or something like that, it was around at least 40% of that. So you got uh, 200 terawatt hours to like benefit half of the globe, right? Even because I'm not sure if this included China, then you got almost 40% to benefit not half of the globe. So there's a, there's a whole equity issue at play there, actually. And I suspect we might want to be, we might not knock, knock this one on the head because this could be a, a rabbit hole that we're not going down because blockchain discussions tend to take up a lot of oxygen, basically. Yes, yes, they do, they do. And we've already had one with Catherine. So folks, go back. We'll put a link in the show notes to that episode because it's worth worth going and listening to. But just something to mention. Now, one of the things, obviously, we... we I mean, I'm looking at the show notes. So this story you're putting it on working with Ripe NCC? Yeah, so the link I've shared there is actually the... So there was a workshop called the E-Impact Workshop by the Internet Architecture Board, where actually some of the discussion I said about, say, the relationship between energy usage and network usage and stuff like that, They uh, there's a series of one or two hour workshops were by a number of experts, like people with lots of letters after their name and published papers and things. They all got together and shared their stuff and uh, they shared some of their findings and had some discussions about, okay, what are the levers for change? Uh, they were all put online. Uh, and uh, what we, what that link is, is a, is basically me collating those YouTube videos uh, which were recorded uh, as a, uh, for, for the workshops, but it also records some of the work we did with Ripe NCC. Ripe NCC are one of the groups who issue IP addresses to people. So like they, they control IP address space. And uh, we did some work with them to basically annotate every single public IP address on earth with information about how clean the energy was at that point that public point of presence on the internet as what you might say with the idea being that, that could support new ways of routing. So we actually submitted our own paper called extending IPv6 for carbon aware networking with the idea being that you could kind of build an awareness so that when you want to route from a packet of data from say one computer to another computer, you could take into, into account the carbon intensity to go through maybe the greenest possible grid. So if the grid itself knows that like it's really, really sunny or windy in one part of Earth, you would have the, the, the packets take that kind of greener route. And as long as it stays inside a kind of latency budget, it should be fine. And you end up with like, you know, low carbon trick shots of packets zipping around all across the world. So that was one of the ideas that we proposed for mm. a paper ourselves. And uh, it turns out that IPv6 actually has, uh, you can extend IPv6 to do this. We didn't realize that. And uh, yeah, so this is one thing we'd like to do in 2023. So we wrote a paper to 
propose this as an idea. And uh, this is builds on the project we did with Ripe NCC to provide that initial layer of annotation with open data from a climate nonprofit called Ember Climate, who are based in the UK and basically publish uh, data about the carbon intensity of electricity all around the world. That's fascinating. And it's, I mean, it'd be one even more important when we start really adopting IPv6 because it's not really going as well as it was meant to go. We are still very heavily reliant on IPv4. I don't, for example, get an IPv6 address from my ISP. We talk about, obviously, the wider infrastructure of the internet, but one thing we were talking about pre-show is actually a lot of that usage, maybe you're streaming Netflix, actually comes down to your own internal network infrastructure, your own router, because it's obviously having to work harder, particularly if you're on Wi-Fi, I, I guess, you know, it's having to put out more transmission power. How much do our, you know, internal networks have an impact? So, yeah, this was actually one thing which is was counterintuitive. And I think it's the second of the videos on the link I just mentioned where people explore this. Uh, essentially, it's not so much a case of routers having to work harder. It's more the case of, do you remember like 20 years ago with a website, when, when someone was going to deploy a website, they would... Uh, provision it for all the traffic. So you'd buy a chonking great web server, even though you're going to get maybe single-digit utilization, right? Mm -hmm. Just just in case you get that spike. Now, with things like cloud, it's, you know, the idea would be that you might be slightly higher level of utilization. uh, So it's not quite so wasteful. Uh, So there is like a degree of power proportionality. And then if you go all the way to things like serverless, then when things are supposed to kind of switch themselves off after use, you've got a much, much greater relationship between the the provisioning of resources and the usage of resources. It turns out that with networking, we're still 10 years ago or 20. We're, we're, it's like we're at that point 20 years ago where you provision for maximum usage all the time. So for Wi-Fi, and uh, they, you'll see a fairly static usage. There is a bit of a fluctuation, but not massively. And uh, the one of the things that surprised me when uh, all these findings were being shared on the workshops was that I think Carbon Trust and the Digital Impact, the DIMPACT uh, project, they were looking at this. Uh, uh, they were looking at the energy usage from, say, video streaming, for example. And uh, it turns out that a significant part of it, like around like between 30 to 40 percent of domestic usage is actually at the router level. And that's uh, over a given year. And that's because we never turn routers off. Uh, so over a given year, right, uh, a router can have the same environmental impact as the fridge, for example, right? Just because it's on, one thing is on all the time, and a fridge, which obviously is going to have spikes of power usage, but most of the time is not on, yeah, you end up with, on average, the same usage uh, for the two of these things. And uh, when you start adding repeaters all around the house, again, you've added another, say, 10 watts 24 7 365 that's going to have another impact there so there is a kind of i was actually surprised by this because i to be honest i didn't really think much of it at all and uh, one of the reasons is that uh, manufacturers have had no priority and no reason to scale this up and down to really really think about this but in aggregate when you've got millions of people with this it turns into a non-zero number but uh in many cases I'm kind of probably I'm of the opinion that you really should solve this part here rather than trying to optimize every single person's router, which would be incredibly complicated. Just if you have a way to like make sure that base load that that you might have is 
just green or very, very low carbon in the first place, that's probably going to be cheaper and much less invasive than trying to get millions of people to replace all the routers. Going forward, you might want to have efficient ones, but right now there's a discussion about, okay, which bits do you retrofit? And there are probably other loads and other uses of power in a house that you might want to start with first rather than going straight for the routers, for example. That's a really interesting thing. Now, in my own home, um, I was very fortunate when I moved into this flat. So, uh, well, part fortunate, part not fortunate. So when I moved in, I thought, I'll get my broadband turned on straight away. There's a socket down there, in this case, it was in the lounge. Well, no, the the new build next door, which backs onto the outside wall in my flat, they had managed to cut the copper cable into my flat. So OpenReach had to come in and install a brand new point mm. because we could no longer get to that side. So there's now a point down here. Uh, but I was very fortunate that, uh, where is it? Yeah, literally down there, the previous tenant had left a hall between what, this is my office and, and, and bedroom, on the other side of this wall, uh, no one else but Chris can see, but you'll see it in the Squadcast, where the calendar is in the Squadcast, down at the bottom of there, folks, there is a hall that they put in that goes into the kitchen and lounge and it's just the right size, or was nearly just the right size, for a network cable. So when the OpenReach chap turned up, I said, hey, could you just drill this just a little bit wider for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've tried to, as much as possible, run Ethernet. If you have the means to do so, and maybe if you're, you know, if you're having a new build, don't neglect having Ethernet put in. My friends had a new build, and they said to me, is there anything we should do tech-wise? I said, pay the extra to have Ethernet throughout the house because you'll get better performance, especially for you, uh, my friend. I won't name him, but he works from home. So I said, look, if you get a ground burial out to your little outside office, you will have far better performance and more reliable connectivity. So it's something to consider. And, you know, do you need the fastest Wi-Fi? If you're, I mean, genuinely, this is something that's crossed my mind. If your broadband is, in this country, fibre to the cabinet, maximum theoretical is about 80 megabits at the most. But if you've got that sort of speed, why do you need a Wi-Fi router that's capable of gigabit speeds? You probably don't. Maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe, but, I mean, as Chris said, there's other things you can solve. Other, I think the term that keeps getting branded around the media at the moment is vampire devices, isn't it? Where you've got things that maybe have screens on and lights and things like that. So this actually, this notion of powering things down when they're not in use, right? It, it very much, it's very much a function of how many things you have and how much they add up to. I mean, this is probably one of the uses, one place where having things like smart meters is actually quite helpful because you get an idea of what these figures might actually be either at a daily level and then see if you will, see if there's any benefit in like choosing to have them or not have them. Uh, I mean, to, let's be real, most of us are human and uh, it's, it's in many ways, it feels like it's very much about defaults. Like Microsoft is flipping a switch to change the default that most people aren't bothered enough to kind of change. And that ends up having an impact. And I feel that there is a, this is something that a manufacturer should be thinking about more than other ones because they have the impact. It's much easier to get a manufacturer to make a change here or have a law that says, well, you're just going to have this default from now on than trying to individually persuade like half a million people to do this kind of stuff. And this is like a discussion about regulation rather than where you go. But I think that this is actually some of the things you, you really do need to do when you're talking about this. I feel like 
vampire usage and stuff like that. It may be a thing, but to land to put it at the end of people feels like it's maybe dis maybe misunderstanding human nature and what people will choose to optimize for on a daily. Absolutely, and I think you know one thing I I do like in devices is where manufacturers have actually gone to the trouble of giving you the option to turn off things like the status LEDs. There's various mm. reasons you, for, for doing that, particularly if you don't want those LEDs in your room. But, you know, okay, they're not going to make a huge impact. But they can all together, if you take everything in your house, you know, we talked pre-show about the difference between LEDs and uh, fluorescent bulbs and traditional bulbs. I mean... Is it fair to say one thing that people can do is if you've still got traditional light bulbs or, C- or any sort of CFLs, invest a little bit and change them to LEDs because it's, well, that's my take anyway. It's worth that spend to, to replace them with LEDs. LEDs are like so much, they're so much cheaper and so much better now in 2023 than they were before. It feels like an absolute no-brainer. Absolutely, actually. Because you know, I don't know if you, you I think you'll know the time. You know those horrible, like, loopy energy saving bulbs that we had yeah those things take a, almost a decade to power up and they look awful whereas an led mm. instant on and look if you want to be fancy you can have color changing ones you know nano leafs uh, hue bulbs everything like that of course that does come with an, uh, an additional power draw because they have to be on but it's probably minimal now one thing you know i wanted to also touch on is batteries because Mm. batteries typically single-use batteries they you know they're done but what about using it was a story from from your from your newsletter and we'll make sure we link to the, to the newsletter edition mm. in question and, and the story but coal waste being potentially used to make new batteries that seems like a win-win yeah so this is a really nice story that i came across in the new yorker actually basically the idea was that um when people burn coal, right, because there's so much stuff, there's like some waste which is left over, right? And uh, you might refer to this as like tailings. It's the kind of stuff that's left over. And in many cases, when you're mining, you'll have stuff left over as well. You have all these things which are considered waste products. And uh, because mining is so inefficient in the first place, like it's, you know, it's like hundreds of kilos just to get, you know, uh, grams out most of the time uh, for for particular me- me- for particular metals. There has been a, like a real interest uh, in people trying to find other sources because we know we know that there's going to be a demand for various rare earth metals or other forms of uh, metal that you might need for what people refer to as transition materials. So things you might want to put into an electric car or to provide wind turbines and things like that. Now. This story in the New Yorker, which I shared and I really loved, was basically people looking at the tailings at that were basically dumped by, say, most kind of coal-fired power plants. They they turn out to be quite rich in all kinds of minerals. The general thrust of the story is that rather than having to dig stuff up or uh, or try and say have all kinds of problematic issues or in like the Atacama Desert in Chile to kind of get lithium. It's maybe plausible to actually treat these massive piles, which are already a blight on, say, a particular landscape and poisoning the land. Mm. Use that as your feedstock instead to kind of pull out the, the minerals you want. And the story was basically 
There was some research that was funded by the US government to find this. And they pretty much identified that these kind of, there is so much coal waste in America already. They reckon they can probably meet most of the demands for rare earth minerals just within America itself, just by kind of mining these sources of junk without having to kind of open new mines or get stuff from elsewhere. Now, the article goes through some of the economics. So in some cases, it's economical. In some cases, it isn't. But there is a, a kind of nice side effect in that you treat otherwise really, really, really toxic uh, kind of parts of uh, la landscape. And there's a kind of similar story in Europe, which is not in this one, but I think I can find a link for the show notes in that urban mining is generally being seen now, landfill, for example, and other things as ways to kind of get gold, for example, or get other minerals that you might use for making electronics. Because once again, uh, the concentrations are high enough to be comparable to drilling or mining for for virgin materials, if you excuse the term, to get this stuff out. So there's a whole thing there about like circular minerals. And this is one of the difference between things like fossil fuels, where you burn it and it's gone, to stuff where you actually have a circular economy, where you have minerals, they're used, and then you find another way to, you keep them in circulation in the kind of what we might refer to as yeah, just I, I think there's there's a very specific term that industrial ecologists use to talk about this kind of a uh, uh, cycle, basically. But it's uh, you, for for the purpose of this podcast, we could just refer to it as in circulation with us, basically. Yeah, the, in the industrial metabolism, I think that's a phrase people use to describe this idea that yeah, there's things you can use, and you don't you needn't go on overseas adventures, for example, if you're able to look a little bit more close to home and realize that lots of these things are around in untreated forms that could be treated. That's incredible. That's just that'd be fantastic. If Pete, if we could get that commitment, I love this story. It's so it's so nice, isn't it? Right? It's pretty freaking cool. It's very cool. It's I, I'm just I'm just that sounds like such as I said earlier, such a win for everyone if we can start using that. Mm. And it brings us on to you know brings us on maybe to something we haven't talked about, but I think is and I think is just as important is device cycles and the supply chain and how often we change our devices and upgrade because so we we talk about you know everyone of course everybody wants the latest tech right it, it's desirable the manufacturers incentivize it like oh buy the latest phone and you will get these new features you will get a bit of a better camera particularly smartphones smartphones are a great example mm-hmm what can we do what what should we what should our mindset be about our device cycles in terms of the so there's obviously the, the original cost of environmental impact of producing those devices there's been the ongoing energy usage but what what should our mindset be in terms of how often we look at replacing devices and maybe one of my favorite things is be able to refurbish devices or give older devices a new life so they're not ending up in landfill I guess this, this question might come in two parts, right? So one of these is, should we be on this kind of consumerist treadmill, continually running to stay up to date, right? And uh, the kind of the short answer, the easy answer is no, right? But it's also worth bearing in mind that in many ways, the the actual kind of expansion of from uh, from gadgets to like people almost being not hardly many hardly any people using them to them being at saturation there have been some knock-on effects that and somewhat broadly in my view have actually been uh quite helpful right but for the most part uh the this idea of 
continually having to buy new electronics is a real problem uh, simply because for end users, the majority of the impact comes from the making part of electronics simply because uh, get, achieving the temperatures necessary to turn sand into, say, microchips, uh, into like uh, integrated circuits is incredibly high. And most of it comes from burning fossil fuels at present right now. Now, I can share a link for those, the kind of people who are kind of into heat pumps with a really good podcast and some papers about about the fact that actually you can decarbonize some of this high heat. So it's plausible that you could decarbonize the, decarbonize the creation of electronics. But until that is mine, um, mainstream, most of the impact will come from the making of this. And that means that if you want to have an impact at the hardware level, you need to either find a way to make them last longer or find ways to only reduce the amount that you need to change each time. So Fairphone do this. Fairphone have got to the point now where they have a kind of modular design. So you can swap out a camera for another camera and things like that. That's really, really, really cool. And I think there's, they basically say that by doing this, you extend the life of a phone by maybe two years. That has something like a 40% impact or 25% reduction on the environmental footprint of the device over the uh, over its life cycle. So that's one example. And like you said, the refurb thing is another example. Like a lot of the time, computers are now so good that we don't necessarily need to buy one right now. And there are things that can stay in circulation a lot of the time that can be used. So... Uh, I've pretty much all the electronics I buy as uh, are pretty much refurb now, simply because I'm not that demanding a consumer such that I need the absolute latest and greatest anymore. And I feel like there is a there there's a, there's there's an argument that we might have for that. But right now, the mental model we probably have, I think it's actually one that is difficult to so solve at the consumer level. It feels like a thing you'd need to have at government level to either basically say. If you're going to make make something, you need to make it from reclaimed materials like the car industry does with most of its steel, for example, like 80% plus close to 90%, I think, is uh, of the steel is recycled. Compare that to electronics where we are like single digit at most, right? It's simply because there are norms that you have there. If you were to do something to like tax virgin materials, so they were that much more expensive, you would very quickly see companies like, say, Fairphone being rewarded for what they're doing compared to companies which force you to buy an entirely new machine for for this. And I feel like a lot of the right to repair stuff happening in Europe and America is nudging in this kind of direction. But it's very much a case of regulation and business model rather than a thing to kind of put on a consumer in my view. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. Look, you know, I'm a big Apple fan. I'm an iOS user, but I recognize that as great as I said, as great as Apple's silicon stuff is, the nature of that SLC means the RAM is on package, which means that you can't upgrade your RAM on an Apple silicon. Mm. I mean, to be fair, you haven't been able to do that on Apple's Intel machines for a while, but that, you know, be able to upgrade the RAM. Now, there's the Fairphone, great example, be able to change camera modules to upgrade. Because if that's the only thing that you need to change, you might be a videographer and you're like, actually, I need a better 4K sensor. Let's swap out that camera module. Brilliant. There's the framework laptop that uh, Linus Tech Tips, mm. uh, Linus Sebastian recommends and, and is an investor in, where you they've shown already that you can just swap out the entire main logic board in the same case 
change out your modules, mm-hmm. change out your screen. And what I love is that they built the logic board to be run outside of that uh, laptop enclosure so you can go into a desktop mm. case. But things like, I mean, look, uh, so great example of this. So tomorrow morning, I'm meeting up with a, a friend of mine, and uh, it's technically a client in this case, but um, helping him with some tech buying. And he said, look, you know, I don't need the latest grace. Well, why don't we look at Apple's refurb store then? Because you for, mm. tell me, talk to me about your use case. What are you going to be doing on these devices? This, he said, this business. I said, okay, you do not need the latest M2 MacBook Air. Let's get you mm-hmm. a refurbed M1. You still get the benefits of the power efficiency of the uh, uh, M series chips. And the same with mm-hmm. his iPhone. He's not, you know, he's not someone who's going to be playing games on it. He's not going to be taking lots of photos. So, we've gone for an 11, an iPhone 11, because it's still supported. There is one thing I want to call out here as well. I don't know if you will agree with this, but we'll see. There should be regulation on device manufacturers to say, you have to provide so many years of full security updates for the operating system that ships with that device. And I think, I will say, I think Apple do this fairly well, and I think the big Android OEMs, obviously Google themselves, do this well. Now, I, I don't know on Fairphone. I'm, I'm not. Sh- I don't know too much about Fairphone's OS. I know it's Android based, but there are Android OEMs out there who are selling phones that will never get updated. These are phones that came out a year ago that will never get updated beyond the current version of Android. Is that something that we need to think about as well, or we need to push for? So yes, it's a short answer. So we, you, you can talk about that. Absolutely. The, this type speaks to the whole idea of like open operating systems and everything like that, right? So one of the reasons that you end up having to buy the things you have to buy from Apple, for example, is because, yeah, everything's welded in place. So you can't use this. I, you know, I, I, I use a Mac. I mean, there's reasons I like using a Mac, but also one of the reasons I'm stuck using a Mac is that some of the software that I have is only going to be available on there and uh, the packaging is only going to come in a certain place. And if I want to have something like a M1 or actually, even though I, in my view, I think the hardware is actually absolutely fantastic now, right? Mm. But mm. Uh, in order to actually use that, uh, there you might be able to use this IE Linux, I suppose, if you want to really dive into the specifics of that. But that, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that kind of thing. I feel in many ways, there is a, a lot of this is tied to the business model that lots of organizations have. Now, to speak to Fairphone, Fairphone are actually pretty good in this sense because they actually have been actively trying to support a number of different operating systems to run on their hardware. So they have been doing a bunch of work in that field. I think they support Sailfish and maybe another another example, but we have like a kind of consolidation of operating systems here that 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 you don't have that many options. Maybe 10, seven or eight years ago when Firefox OS was a possible option, what became, what Firefox OS became is another, is, is something else. But that's something I don't really feel I know enough to kind of talk about, even though I know it's actually very popular in India now for other kinds of oh, phones. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's really, it's, re- it's worth looking at that. Like literally two years after Firefox kind of uh shuttered down the the operating system it became massive in india like hundred you know tens if not hundreds of millions of users and uh, hundreds of millions of handsets have been sold using a variant of the operating system that was that firefox spent a bunch of time working on fascinating and i you know i'm a big fan of i i admit i have not used them yet but the pine 
the pine phone and the pine laptop, the, the concepts there really interest me. I I am look I, just like you. I use a Mac. I like macOS. I like a lot about it, but there's a lot that I think Apple could do better, and Microsoft could do better. I think the problem is there's no perfect tech company out there because in most cases they're all answerable to shareholders, and their goal is to make those shareholders money. Yeah, there is. There is um. There's a piece uh, I'll share a link in for this about Grist about. Uh, some other things that you can actually do as a shareholder if you do care about this because uh, there's a whole suite of people doing actual shareholder activism for this and this has been one of the pivotal things that led to both Microsoft being much more on uh, kind of warm to right to repair but also Apple like uh, there's a really lovely piece in one of the cat newsletter things I'll share a link to that I think is relevant but you're right we have no employee owned uh, hardware manufacturing gadget company that I'm aware of right present even though they exist for providing services, simply because I think maybe the hardware requirements are so high for any of this stuff. And and do you think, here's, here's one to pose for yourself and for, for our listeners. Right now, every phone, pretty much every phone in manufacturer, Sam, I'm going to use Samsung, Apple, and Google as examples here. They all release new phones, at least one new phone every year, sometimes two. Some, I mean, Apple typically release, what, three or four phone models a year in their line. Samsung, the same. You know, you have the Note, you have the uh, S-series. I mean, Samsung in particular have everything else under the sun as well. Do you think if they all said, actually, why don't we agree that we're going to change to a two-year cycle? Would that have a huge impact? Is that something that's even that they would even go for? Or is are they so stuck in that we have to have a new product so that people spend money with us every year. I'm out of my league here, mate. I don't know enough to know how what the impact that would be, whether you would just have pent-up demand, like we've seen with Raspberry Pis for two years, or whether you'd actually have real change. At this point here, yeah, I don't have enough data to make no, a... No, that, that's fine. Da- yeah, <laughs> sorry, dude, no, I'm out. No, no, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't, don't apologize. It's, it's, a, it's a question I ponder, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. We don't have... you Because it's not been done, I mean, the Raspberry Pi, as you said, not only do what we are several years into the Raspberry Pi 4, there's been a huge supply shortage of them, but there's still huge demand. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. And I, this is where I'd love to hear from, from you lot, our listeners. Please, what do you think? Would you wait two years for a new iPhone? If, you, if you're someone who buys an iPhone every year, which I don't. Look, I'm a tech nerd, but this is a 13 Pro. I'm not going to be upgrading this for at least three or four years. Uh, my, my general rule of thumb is once a device stops receiving security updates be that through its original operating system or by installing something like linux you know um i a couple of weeks ago i recorded with nick from the linux experiment and we were talking about breathing new life into laptops older laptops by installing linux onto them you know you can really revive some old machines i think like just putting an ssd in there putting a bit more ram in can really revive old tech I'd, i'd be generally curious to see how that would play out so, Chris, this has been a really fascinating question. One final thing I want to talk a little bit about is smart home tech, and more so around, does the additional energy consumption and the additional environmental impact of smart home gadgets, things like, um, you know, maybe uh, Apple's ecosystem home kit or the uh, Amazon ecosystem, I'm trying not to say the word so I don't trigger anyone's devices, 
do the automation potentials that they bring to say, okay, make sure that my lights switch off when I leave, or make sure my lights, all, you know, I don't, my lights turn off at sunrise, uh, turn on, sorry, turn on at sunset, but not before. Does that, again, that cost of manufacture, that cost of, you know, energy usage, does that outweigh the benefits of a home automation? I think it's worth. When you're talking about what is effectively an investment in a home improvement, it might be worth using that kind of language to help, right? So when you think about solar panels, you talk about how long does it take to repay, right? You could think about that as well. You could use that kind of mental model for this. And that highlights that these questions need to be asked with timeframes associated with them. So... If you had something where if you're using huge amounts of power and this allows you to switch things off, then over a year, yeah, you're going to make an impact, right? But it may be a question of how many years do you need for that? Now, the thing I would share with you, though, is that if we are getting to the point where we are increasingly thinking about electrifying the tool, uh, most of the services you might have in a house. And when I say services, I'm referring to light, connectivity, heat, things like that. And we haven't really spoken about this, but but if we know that the carbon intensity of electricity will change based on times of day, for example, so sometimes it might be more green to run on a, a, a battery in-house versus putting from the grid, then yes, you could make an argument that having something to help manage that, to think of your house as a kind of nano grid connecting to a larger grid, that you, you can make an argument for that. But you really need to have some data on what the embedded impact associated is for getting all that stuff deployed into your house. And so far, I don't know anywhere you can actually come up with those numbers yourself. So you'd have to come up with a figure every single time for every single home. So there is, um, I hate to say this, but the answer is probably it depends for this. But the thing I can point you to, which might be interesting if you're into this, is some work by Facebook Research. They did something specifically for carbon, uh, for trying to work out at what point uh, the environmental impacts of their data centers are improved by them having batteries and solar on site or not, or just making it scale up and down to their usage, depending on what the carbon intensity of, of the grid might actually be. So they were so they there is some research in this field, but it's largely at very, very large devices rather than home devices. And I'm not familiar with any home-based home stuff that comes up with numbers for you to end up with any reasonable reasonable figures for that. No, it, it is really interesting. I mean, look, you know, there's all this comes back to we can have to consider that our convenience and our enjoyment of tech does come with an environmental cost that we should be considering. And it is, you know, it's, it's really interesting where, you know, you – you know, where it's getting picked up, you know, things like considering, okay, and, and to wrap up things like other devices, you know, beyond maybe simple tech, like this whole thing of an air fryer might be better because it's using less electricity to do the same thing. Great. That's, that's wonderful. You know, as we talked about, maybe looking at, you know, do you need to, if you, okay, here's one final thought. If you need to, if you watch a lot of TV, is your current TV as energy efficient as it could be? And where does that trade? And again, 
it comes down to where's the trade-off between that investment in upgrading versus how much it's going to save you and how much it's going to have an impact mm. on the environment. I think that's a maybe a, a good point. Chris, if, if you were to, and we're going to wrap up, but if you were to leave our listeners with one sort of thought, and I haven't actually to prepare this, so I do apologize, but one sort of thought as to this whole landscape that we're talking about today, what, what would you say that would be? If any of this has interested you and you care about the climate impact of electronics or even just being a technologist, there is a community called climateaction.tech that I'd really recommend joining where there's lots of people similar to you. And if you think any of this stuff has been interesting, I'd really recommend following the work we do uh, at the Green Web Foundation because we basically exist to help people like yourself embed an awareness of climate and climate justice into your professional life as a technologist and we do it in a kind of open nerdy open data fashion so if you're listening to this podcast i suspect you'll probably like what we do awesome chris thank you so much to, for your time where can where can people find you if, if you're one of those people who likes to be followed on social media where, where can people find you so i'm i've been mr chris adams on most social media and professional tools for the last like 10 years so it's chris it's chris adams so m-r-c-r-h-i-s-a-d-a-m-s uh i was i'm mr chris adams on twitter but i'm also on mastodon uh, at times as well but uh generally if you if you if you do a search for mr chris adams all one word on most search engines i should be coming up as one of the top results because I've spent 10 years trying to Google whack that and I hope it's working. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we 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 I I have to admit I'm spending most of my time now on Mastodon rather than Twitter. Um just such a nicer place. Uh Chris, thank you again so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cross Wires. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please drop us a note over to podcast at crosswires.net. You can also drop us a comment on the post or if you're a GoodPod user, why not start a discussion there too? You can also join our new Discord server at crosswires.net forward slash Discord. We've got forum channels for each episode and we'd love you to join the discussion there. You can also follow us on Mastodon at crosswires at mastodon.social. And of course, you can find the show in all the good podcast apps and all the really bad ones too. More of our content, head on over to crosswires.net slash YouTube for all our videos and keep an eye on our Twitch channel at crosswires.net slash live our upcoming streams if you like what you heard please do drop a review in your podcast directory of choice it really does help spread the word about the show and of course if you can spare even the smallest amount of financial support we'd be incredibly grateful you can support us at ko-fi.com slash crossed wires that is ko-fi.com slash crossed wires until next time thanks for listening